Welcome to the Max Bernier Show. Here's the leader of the People's Party of Canada, Maxime Bernier. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Max Bernier Show. Today, I have the privilege and the opportunity to have a discussion with uh, Dr. Gad Saad. is one of the best-known public intellectuals fighting the tyranny of political correctness. Professor of Marketing at the John Molson School of Business at Concordia University, author of numerous scientific papers, and he just published a new book called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. And actually, Dr. Jordan Peterson said about Dr. Sad book, read this book, strengthen your resolve and help us return to reason. So Dr. Saad, welcome to my show. Oh, such a pleasure to finally be on. Thank you, last year you came on my show and now I'm reciprocating. So thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's very fun. I think we'll have a nice discussion about your new book. And just before beginning, we all know, or I know personally that you are a free thinker and but I want to know, and I think our viewers will be interesting to know also what led led you to become an ardent uh, warrior for freedom and truth. Yeah, that's a great question, which I discuss actually in the first chapter of the book. So I come from Lebanon. We we are Lebanese Jews who escaped the civil war, and so I had firsthand opportunity to see what happens to a society when it is defined by identity politics. So that was probably my first exposure to tribalism and how ugly it can be. Then we moved to Canada. I studied in Canada, studied in the U.S., got my, you know, became a professor. And then I started seeing a second war. So I left one war in Lebanon, and I started seeing a second war on reason on university campuses. So as a professor of 26 years, I could not believe some of the stuff that I was seeing being taught, if not published, within the halls of academia. And being the person that I am, which is I speak my mind, I'm not afraid of anything. Uh, I'm not willing to uh, allow baloney to withstand scrutiny. I got into the fight and I've never looked back since. That's, uh, you know, I think uh, that's why you are so popular on uh, YouTube and different social media, and uh, a lot of people are following you. But also, uh, you just spoke about what happened at university campuses. Can you give us some example of the political correctness that happened in different uh, campuses across the country? Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, there's an endless number. I'll just give you a few. Uh, which kind of research you do now is no longer dependent on whether it is an interesting research question, but rather whether the findings are going to be hurtful in some ways. So for example, if you're studying sex differences, which is something that I study because as an evolutionary psychologist, one of the things that I look at is evolved sex differences, sex differences rooted in our biology. Yeah. Well, if that now becomes something that someone doesn't like, well, then you better think twice before trying to publish it, because this is part of what's called forbidden knowledge. If someone says a joke that someone disapproves of, it's not good. If someone teaches something that hurts someone's feelings, even if what they're teaching is correct, then it is not appropriate. As you probably know, 
in 2017, both Jordan Peterson and I appeared in front of the Canadian Senate to discuss some of the difficulties with Bill C-16, which looks at which looked at incorporating uh, gender identity and gender expression within the rubric of hate crimes. And we weren't saying that we're not for gen- uh, transgender rights. Of course we are. But what I was certainly trying to say is, you know, be careful of the slippery slope, because if I'm teaching evolutionary psychology in class and someone says, but professor, you didn't talk about transgendered people in your class, then suddenly that could be a politically incorrect position. So political correctness is in every millimeter of the university, and it shouldn't be because what defines a university is precisely the fact that we should be going into intellectual landscapes unencumbered by political correctness. And when you are fighting for freedom and freedom of thought, freedom of uh, uh, expression and religion, uh, but some people can tell you, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, we must put a limit to our freedom because of hate speech. So uh, what do you think about that? Uh, I think personally, there's no limit. You know, you must be able to say what you want to to say to a person and whatever the feeling that person will feel. I I think you explained that in your book in in a great detail details. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Uh, I'm a free speech absolutist. And the the example that I like to give in support of that position is, as I mentioned at the start of our chat, I'm Jewish. And yet I support the right of Holocaust deniers to deny the Holocaust. There is nothing that is more offensive. I mean, by definition, Mm -hmm. you have the systematic eradication of a whole people in a manufacturing system, right? You're getting rid of millions of people. The historical records are very clear. The grotesque nature of the extermination was very clear. And yet I, as a member of those people, believe that in a free society, even something as disgusting as that has to be tolerated. The only place where I would put a restriction on free speech is, of course, a direct incitement to violence. So, for example, you could say Judaism is a bunch of garbage, And that's perfectly allowed. If you say, let's go out into the street, round up all the Jews and kill them, that's not allowed. Short of that, short of libel, short of defamation, uh, everything is allowed in a free society. Yeah, and you have also in Canada the the criminal code that is uh, just there to uh, uh, have, and there's a definition of hate speech in that in the criminal in our criminal code, and it's very precise. You must, uh, uh, you know, uh, and you must try to uh, incite people to be violent or things like that, and you must have strong proof for that. But I think in the university campuses, uh, all that idea of uh, insulting people by telling what you believe in. And the idea that we must have a free space or, or, or space in a university hey, that hey. yes, yeah, yeah, not free, yeah, and that in a university that you'll be able to uh, to respect people. So, I, what, what do you think about all that logic? Or it's not logic for me, but uh, yeah, yeah, I understand. Uh, look, let me give you a, a very nice analogy from evolutionary medicine, which I discuss actually in the book. Uh, there's something called the hygiene hypothesis, which basically says that if you want, for example, children to grow up without any respiratory ailments, let's say asthma, then you want them to grow up in an environment where they are exposed to pollutants, allergens, because by being exposed early in life to allergens, this triggers your immune system. Your immune system expects to not grow up 
in a sterile hospital room. It wants to be exposed to pathogens. Now take this idea to, uh, to opposing ideas, right? So an opposing idea is like a pathogen against your position. Well, for me to have a well-functioning brain, I should be exposed to these pollutants, these idea pollutants. This is how I learn how to think. This is this was actually, uh, this analogy was proposed by a Australian neuropsychiatrist. And I think it's brilliant because it demonstrates that this notion of having echo chambers, safe spaces, is literally contrary to the Darwinian principle by which our human minds have evolved. That's how I grow, by sitting with you, exchanging ideas. And if my ideas are good, I have to be able to practice defeating your ideas. If we create sterile environments, we're all basically lobotomized fools. Absolutely. And that's uh, that's why the, the society is uh, evolving and, you know, we are able to have different discussion usually. But right now, what you're saying in your book, there's a, a virus out there, uh, a virus that is in our mind with political correctness, uh, identity politics and things like that, that people are a little bit afraid to say what what they think that they believe would to have an argument. And you're saying in your book that uh, uh, human, uh, us, uh, we are both a thinking and a feeling animal. Uh, but I think, you know, we must, uh, yes, we have emotions and that's okay, but also we must use our reason. And, but sometimes we are using our emotions when you, we are in a situation that it must be our reason that we must uh, use to think and to uh, debate. Exactly right. So this is in chapter two where I talk about thinking versus feeling. And I argue that it is a wrong dichotomy to try to say we are this or that. We are both thinking animals and reasoning animals. The, the, the challenge is to apply the right system at the right time. So if I'm walking down a uh, street and I decide to take a shortcut in an alley and I see four young men loitering around, I might start getting a fear response. My heart will start beating. Uh, my blood pressure goes up. That's an emotional system that makes perfect evolutionary sense because it is basically saying to me, be careful, there might be danger. So in that case, it makes sense. If I'm trying to uh, do well on a calculus exam, then having all of my emotional system triggered is not gonna do anything to me doing well on the calculus exam. So now how do we apply this to you know, some of the issues that, we discuss, uh, that we're discussing here? If, for example, you're choosing a president, in this case, in the United States, yeah. regrettably, many of my intellectual friends are completely driven by their emotional system. So Trump disgusts them. He repulses them. He's grotesque. He's vile, right? Mm -hmm. So every single descriptor I just used to justify my position is based on my emotional system. Yeah. Obama is classy. He's majestic. He makes me feel good. He's taller. He's lanky. So again, it's all emotional descriptors. It says nothing about the policies. The reality is many of my colleagues who, in terms of the positions of Trump, they would support him, right? When it comes to freedom of speech, when it comes to fighting against these idea pathogens, but they don't care about that. He disgusts them, he's vulgar. So this is what I'm warning against. When should you use the right system? 
Yeah, absolutely. And me as the leader of the People's Party of Canada, I'm speaking with people and I'm always telling them, you know, if you like what I'm saying, please vote for me. If you don't, don't vote for me. That's that's easy. And and I ask them to that. I And I'm telling them that I'm not uh, trying to uh, speak to their emotions, but to their intellectual. I want them to have a look to our policies. And that's another way of doing politics. It's very different. Uh, but I like like what I'm doing and I won't do any compromise with uh, the Western civilization values and freedom and responsibility and uh, our policies are based on these uh, values. But uh, in this uh, world, to ask people to uh, when they, they will go out there and vote to ask them to look at the policies instead of the emotion and the look of that politician, it's a, it's a big challenge. You're, you're exactly right. And, and by the way, I can speak to when you and I had our chat on my show, uh, I would get say, well, why did you speak to this guy? And I would say, what do you mean? What? Tell me exactly what you don't like about him. They couldn't enunciate, but they could very quickly put you in a pigeonhole, right? Oh, he's, he's a right wing, he's extremist. I say, no, no, but tell me exactly which position is extremist, just so that I could learn, so that maybe I shouldn't invite him on my show next time. <laughs> and of course, they can't offer that because look, Humans are cognitive misers. Cognitive misers meaning they're cognitively lazy. It's a lot easier for me to very quickly decide that Mr. Bernier is a quack and then put him aside. It makes my decision-making process that much easier than if I actually have to sit there and do the hard work of listening to your 17 positions. Much easier to simply discount you. And regrettably, that's what people do when they should be, as I said, engaging their cognitive system. Yeah, absolutely. And in your book, you are also very critical of the ideology of diversity, inclusion, and equity. Um, I think you, you believe as a scientist that the scientific method and the freedom of speech and the intellectual diversity must, uh, must prevail. Uh, and did you have some uh, experience at your university about that? Yeah, so... Uh now, when you apply for grants, uh, the highest grants from the, say, from the federal or the provincial government, you have to write a, what I call a die statement, the die religion. Die stands for diversity, inclusion, and equity. And I call it die on purpose because it's where meritocracy goes to die, right? So rather than judging the scientific merits of a grant, right, we decide on whether we give you the grant or not, taxpayer money grant, on whether you've done the right things to adhere to die principles. If you're going to have a lab, are you going to adhere to die principles? Well, I don't adhere to die principles. I adhere to excellence. So if you are a transgender person of color who is the best person, I want you on my team. If you're not, I don't want you on my team. We're now giving chair professorships, the highest level professorships, based on whether you adhere to certain by markers. I mean, and what's incredible is that people are proud of doing these things, right? Because that's the beauty of social justice warriors, right? Is that they have terribly totalitarian and fascist ideas, but they cloak them in the robe of nobility. Well, what do you mean? How could you be against diversity? What's wrong with you, Dr. Sad? There's nothing noble about this. When you run the 100 meters, the first person who crosses the line gets the gold medal. I don't care what your identity is. 
As a matter of fact, the scientific method is the brilliant epistemology that it is because it allows us to free ourselves from our identity. I don't practice Lebanese Jewish science. I practice science, right? There is no indigenous way of science. There is no Lebanese way of science. There is science. And yet now we are going back to the dark ages. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And and in politics, also the same thing, you know, um, the uh, elite uh, journalists want politicians to say that we are in Canada uh, living in a society that is uh, uh, radical and, and uh, that is also racist and uh, we have systemic racism in Canada. Uh, and if you don't say that there is systemic racism in Canada, oh my God, you're a bad politician. Just in Quebec, the journalists are asking Legault about that and he didn't use the word systemic racism. And uh, the elite leftist journalists are against him for that and, and also for, uh, against myself for that. So that's the political correctness uh, at the highest uh, level. So what do you think of all that? And it's another example that it's happening right now in our society that we don't, we, we just try to use words to please people and without uh, looking at the consequences of that. So I don't know if, do you, are you familiar with the, in English, the, the animal, the honey badger? Do you know what that is? I don't know what it is in French, even though I speak fluent French. I don't know. What is a honey badger in French? Do you know what it is? Uh, no, honey badgers. A honey badger is a, is a, the size of a small dog that is extraordinarily ferocious and fierce. In other words, it could have six lions approach it and they will run away because it is so intimidating. And so I argue that we have to activate our inner honey badger. So what do I mean by that? If I have a set of principles that I could clearly defend, that I truly believe in, that I can articulate why I hold those principles, you and 50 others can come at me and I'm going to intimidate you out of existence. And this is why people say, well, how are you able to survive, Dr. Saad, in academia at your university, being able to say the things that you do? Well, because I am the king of the honey badgers. If you come <laughs> after me, you better come after me and make sure to kill the king. Because if not, when I come after you, it's not going to be pretty. So when Legault or whomever politician decides to equivocate and starts crying and apologizes, each time you do that, you are murdering truth. You are murdering the protective belt that has made the West what it is. And as someone who comes from Lebanon, right, I am standing before you as a, you know, you're a leading national politician telling you that I'm forever thankful to Canada because Canada exists with all its beauty so that people like me can escape the hell holes from which we come. And now we are trying to replicate the environments from which people like me escape. It's insane. Uh, yeah, it is. And actually, you're right, because uh, during the last uh, general electoral campaign here in Canada, um, you know, I was saying thing and people why Bernier, there's a systemic racism in this country. You must apologize for what you said. And, uh, and I said, no, there's not. Maybe institutional racism in this country by, uh, by a legislation, the Indian Act, it's a racist act and we must abolish that. But that's institutional legislative racism, but there's no systemic racism. And because you're saying that, 
people ask you to uh, say that you're sorry or you did a mistake. And same thing when you have the debate. And I think you 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 wrote something in your book about uh, mass immigration and the impact of mass immigration. And we must have the courage to have a debate on immigration. And because of all that political correctness, it is uh, difficult for a politician to to speak about that. Yeah, look, uh, in the book, I have this very long quote from uh, Professor Salim Mansour, whom I know you know, yeah. uh, who is, by the way, an Indian. So he's a man of color, a person of color, who is a practicing Muslim. And if you read his testimony in front of the Standing Committee on Immigration, you would think, oh, my God, what an Islamophobe, what a bigot, what a racist. And what is Salim saying? Hey, look. You can't let in hundreds of thousands of people who don't support the values on which your country has been built on. This, it doesn't take Einstein to recognize this. I come from the Middle East. I know what those values are, religious or, and or cultural values. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't let people from a Muslim background in. Sometimes I may have more in common with a Muslim person than a Jewish rabbi if he believes in secular, truly liberal values. So I judge people on the merits of their individual worth. But if you're going to let in people from countries that have 95% Jew hatred, so there are global surveys that show that, you know, you come from Syria, from Jordan, from Yemen, from all these, from Lebanon, they, they typically have between 95 to 99 hatred of the Jews. Well, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to understand that if you're going to let in 100,000 people, probably Jew hatred is going to increase in Canada. This is not Islamophobic. It's not bigoted. It's not racist. It's just basically understanding that the, the sun exists. It's as banal as that. But yet most people are afraid to say it. In a sense, I'm protected. So I could say those things, whereas you can't, because I come from the Middle East. Because, <laughs> right? And that's ridiculous, right? Because the value of that statement, whether it's true or not, should be independent of the identity of the person saying it. Either I'm right or wrong. It's not if Gad Saad says it, it's okay. But if Maxime Bernier says it, he's a bigoted Islamophobe. But that's the type of world we live in and it has to be defeated. And that's why in your book, you are calling uh, the disease that is affected our society, the ostrich parasitic syndrome. Yes. <laughs> Can you explain It's a little sure. bit more about that? Yeah. Sure, I... thank you. Thank you for your fantastic questions. Uh, so this is a metaphor because the ostrich doesn't actually do this, but the idea is that the ostrich buries its head in the sand yes. to sort of go, la, 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 I don't want to hear it, right? Yeah, it, wanna, yeah. it wants to avoid reality. And it's parasitic because I argue that many of these bad ideas, these idea pathogens are akin to a brain worm because they cause us to behave in maladaptive ways, either individually or collectively as a society. So ostrich parasitic syndrome is the, collective malady of ignoring realities that are as clear as the existence of gravity. So for example, if a terrorist called Ahmed Muhammad Hussein does a clip that he posts saying, I'm about to go blow up this cafe and here are the 17 reasons from my religion why I'm doing it, right? So it's very clear. Yeah. Then the next day, all my fancy, nuanced, progressive professor friends will say, aha, it must be because of lack of art exposure. It must be because he was bullied because of his beard. It must be because of 
uh, French or U.S. colonialism. It must be because of Islamophobia. It must be because of lack of solar panels and climate change and on and on. As a matter of fact, in the book, I list something like maybe 67 or 70 reasons that people have offered to explain when a, when a terror, terrorist commits an act and says it's because of his religion, they say, no, it's not. That's a manifestation of ostrich parasitic syndrome. So I could take his words at value and say, yes, he did it because he was moved to do so because of his religion without having any hatred towards Muslims, right? I probably have more Muslim friends than most people will ever meet in their lives. As a matter of fact, I receive a million emails from Muslim people saying, thank you for speaking out. So you could both be committed to the truth and have zero hate in your heart. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you, you said in your book that um, we must have these the real discussion with our friends. And I, I like the example that you use. Uh, you know, if you have a real friend, you must be able to have a, a, a truthful discussion. And uh, if somebody doesn't want to discuss that, or they're saying, you know, you're not my friend anymore because you believe in that, at the beginning, that person was not your friend. But it takes some courage for some people to express their point of view and having a discussion. But sometimes, you know, people want to please everybody and, and they don't want to have this kind of uh, intellectual discussion. But it's important for, for, for the society. It's important because I think personally that uh, we, we have the better ideas and I just want to debate our ideas, you know, when it's based on individual freedom, personal responsibility, respect, fairness, and Western civilization values. We must be able to have a discussion. But sometime, because of that political correctness or the they said, oh, no, they're going to give you a name, Bernie, you, uh, you're a racist because you want uh, fewer immigrants or things like that. What, what is your advice for our viewers if we want to, to fight this uh, political correctness everywhere in our, in our life and in the society? So for, uh, I'll answer that in a second, but let me just build on what you said about friendships. So in the book, I talk about French, friendships being anti-fragile, right? Anti-fragility is a property of a system whereby you need to have stressors, you know, uh, shake something. And if it survives, then it makes it stronger. So if a friendship is so brittle that it can't withstand you and I having different views on whether we like Justin Trudeau or not, you know what? I'm not interested in your friendship. And so I actually use in, in, in the book, I use a few French expressions, which of course you'll, you'll know, you know, mieux vaut être seul que mal accompagné, right? Yeah. I don't care about your friendship if you are not someone with whom I could sit down and really get down dirty with the discussion. I grow from having that conversation. Let's open a bottle of wine and you tell me why you love Trudeau. I know, I don't mean you. And I'll tell you why I don't. And then we'll leave shaking hands and we're better for it, right? So, so I completely agree with what the introduction you gave. Now, in terms of advice, so I already said, activate your inner honey badger, meaning never back down from defending your principles. Never not have a debate because you're afraid to lose someone's friendship. Never subcontract your voice to others. So here's what often happens. I receive a million emails from people. Dear Dr. Saad, I'm a professor at so-and-so. Thank you so much for your courage. Uh, you're my hero, blah, blah, blah. Oh, but please, don't mention that I support you if you read my letter publicly. Well, yeah. what is, but there is the problem. Yeah. The fact that you have to leave that last point, what are you afraid of? That I defend freedom of speech? 
that I defend equality for all, that I believe in meritocracy, that I support the scientific method, which part are you so afraid of, right? Mm -hmm. So what they basically do is they either defend you from the shadows or they say, you know what? God sad has the courage to do it on our behalf. So I'll keep quiet because I can't risk anything. So let me give you a very specific example that just happened yesterday, okay? And I actually, my latest sad truth clip on my YouTube channel discusses this. So my, my children, well, my daughter, my older child came to me and said, well, her science teacher has as her avatar for one of their online things, the BLM thing, right? Yeah. Uh, so for, for about a month, I sat quietly, but then I said, this can't stand. So yesterday I wrote a very, very polite, but very firm letter to the principal saying that it is completely inappropriate for a teacher to be advertising her political positions in the service of her pedagogic responsibilities. I teach at the bachelor's, master's, and doctoral level, students who are 40 years old, and I don't sit in class ever espousing my politics. Now, as a public intellectual, I will, but in the pursuit of my professorial duties, I never violate that responsibility. As I, so number one, I said, it is, it, it is pedagogically inappropriate for her to be indoctrinating our, student, our students, number one or and certainly my children. Number two, I said, maybe you need to spend a bit more time to find out what BLM stands for. It's a Marxist black supremacist organization that despises openly white people. The last time I checked in your classroom, you have white students. Do you think it is appropriate for a teacher to be uh, you know, advertising this, uh, this indoctrination? Guess what? It took roughly 12 hours for the teacher to get rid of the BLM thing. Now, not many people would have had the courage that I did, but I was willing to take it as far as you wanted to take it. But guess what? She saw that it would probably be a bad idea to fight me. And guess what? They lost that brainwashing power, uh, that brainwashing interaction. So if every single person did what I just did, then we would win the battle of idea. The problem is out of a hundred such occasions, one person speaks out. So we lose 99 of the other interaction. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, how do you see our future uh, as, a, as a society? Um, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Uh, how do you see the future in this uh, environment? Yeah, look, uh, it's gonna go one of two ways. If we continue being apathetic in our cowardice, in being quiet while sending me private emails saying, I love you, but shh, please don't tell anybody that I do, we will lose this battle. Now, it won't come tomorrow. It might take 20 years, it might take 50 years, it might take 100 years. But if you don't protect the central foundational values that makes Canada great, we will lose. On the other hand, if everybody is able to be inspired to speak out in unison, so that the silent majority, most people hate the stuff. They're just too afraid to say anything about it. Yeah. So if we can get them ignited to say, wait a minute, I've had enough. I'm going to speak out. Then we will win this battle by next Tuesday. So it's really going to be one of two roads. Either the, the wall will crumble very quickly and we'll have back all of our freedoms and liberties, or it will be a long descent into hell. And our big, uh, biggest challenge right now is the, the elites, if I can say something like that, the journalist elite. They went to universities and uh, 
a couple of years and uh, and you know all that logic and uh, and the way of seeing our society with the socialist uh, principle it's in their mind and now you're reading the newspaper actually today they had a piece about uh, black life matter and the, the lady who started that in la presse in french and it was all you know oh, she's a great person she's fighting for good values but that's a marxist organization like you said but nothing about that in that uh, piece of paper from la presse so we have to fight against these uh, journalists and, and and intellectuals that want to impose their socialist and marxist view of the of the society on us it's a, it's a big it's a big task yeah look I, i i think there's enough blame to go for the journalists but the journalists were trained by the professors So if I'm going to put the blame on anyone, I'm regretfully going to say, as a professor, put the blame on the professors because it, all these idea pathogens start within the university ecosystem. As I keep reminding people, it takes intellectuals to come up with truly dumb ideas, right? So every single one of the idea pathogens that I discuss in the book, postmodernism, yeah. uh, cultural relativism, uh, identity politics, uh, militant feminism, biophobia. Biophobia is the, the fear of using biology to explain human behavior. So I discuss a whole bunch of these idea pathogens. Every single one of them started within the university ecosystem. And usually they start off with a kernel of truth and with a noble cause, but then they quickly mutate into insanity. So for example, if you take militant feminism, Yeah. But if you talk about equity feminism, that's a great idea. Men and women should be equal under the law. There should be no systematic or institutionalized sexism. Well, you and I could certainly agree that, yeah, that makes sense. The problem, though, is that when you start saying, well, in the pursuit of these feminist ideals, we have to create a new world reality whereby we reject the possibility that men and women might have biological differences. They're indistinguishable. Well, that makes no sense, right? I could be fully in support of equity feminism without murdering and raping truth. I could walk and chew gum at the same time. The problem with each of these idea pathogens is that they don't do that. So for example, transgender activism, well, of course I support transgender rights, but in the pursuit of transgender rights, I don't support the right of a six foot four, 270 pound guy who decides that tomorrow he is a woman, that he should fight in female sports. That's insane. It takes a three-year-old to know that that's crazy. So again, that's the problem. In the pursuit of noble causes, we never murder truth. Yeah. And uh, I remember having a question from a journalist asking me if I'm a feminist, because uh, you may remember Justin Trudeau, uh, he is very proud to say that he's a strong feminist. And so uh, the you know, very short interview, I had that question and I said no. And uh, no, because of the definition of uh, feminist today. I cannot agree with, with, uh, with that. Oh my God, that was a huge debate. You were a Nazi. Sorry? You were, you were basically a Nazi after that, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because they're using good words in the beginning, like you said, that has a definition and they try with, to change that definition and in, in the more socialist or imposing their views. And, uh, and now, you know, a feminist today is not the feminist that fight for, for uh, real rights of women uh, 50 years ago. You know, they're, they're fighting for more uh, intervention of the, the government to, to promote uh, people that maybe uh, don't have the, the, the quality for a job. And uh, like, uh, you know, I prefer to have people who 
you know, like the meritocracy. I think it's important and people must be judged by their character, like uh, Professor Luther King said, you know, and not by the color of the skin or because they're a guy or a lady or, you know, but in the society today, uh, they want to promote everybody from and without looking at their at their value or their character or their competence for for something uh it's happening everywhere and it's 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 sad yeah and 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 i think that one of the dishonest elements of this reality is that you start off originally with a victimhood narrative that could have been rooted in reality there was a time in our past where women women were discriminated against in universities it is no longer true. So let me give you an example. Yeah. The, the U.S. government had some data a few years ago showing that across four levels of education. So in the U.S., you have what's called an associate's degree. That's like half a bachelor's, right? Okay. So you have an associate's degree, you have a bachelor's degree, you have a master's degree, and then you have the doctorate. So four, four levels of education across five races, you know, black, white, mm -hmm. Hispanic, Samoan, whatever. So you have five races across four education levels. So there are 20 different cells in the table. In every single one of the cells, women outnumbered men. So let me repeat, for every racial category and every level of educational attainment, women outnumber men. So if there ever was systemic sexism, it's certainly not the one that we've been saying. It's in the opposite direction. Yet, I will receive an email at my university asking me to speak at a women in business conference to explain how I am an ally to women. I refuse to participate. I said, I'm not an ally to women. I'm not an ally to men. I'm an ally of promising people, irrespective of their ovulatory status. My dean is a woman. My departmental chair is a woman. My associate dean of research is a woman. My God, let's find a way to help women. They're being so discriminated against. So, but the reason why that happens is because there is an orgiastic need to be the apex on the victimology hierarchy, right? This is what I call victimology poker, right? Or oppression Olympics, right? Well, the reality is I'm the king of victimology poker. I have a real victimology story. I escaped execution in Lebanon. My parents were kidnapped by Fatah and tortured. And this is, by the way, maybe why I'm able to say the things that I can say. Because if you're going to come to me with your victimology story, you better be able to outrank me. And you can't. Therefore, mm -hmm. you run away. But the fact that we have to use those vulgar games of victimology is so grotesque. Instead of us deciding who wins the battle of ideas, based on the merit of our ideas, we use the victimology currency. It's disgusting. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, politicians also like uh, to use that with uh, virtue signaling and, you know, they're, they're, they're playing that game and, um, and with the identity politics at the same time, looking at a person, not as a person, but as part of a group and uh, having policies for special uh, interest groups instead of a uh, making policies for all Canadians, uh, that's, um, that's bad for the society. And at the end, you know, it's uh, divide us and not unite us. Um, but that being said, that's why, you know, uh, 
uh, we created the People's Party to fight that. Uh, but I'm very, uh, very um, happy that you uh, took the time to be with us. But uh, Dr. Saad, do you have uh, other things to add to our viewers before closing that uh, interview? Well, first, thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure and honor to be with you. Uh, please consider purchasing the book. Per consider purchasing and gifting it to a lot of your family members and friends, many of whom undoubtedly have been afflicted with many of these idea pathogens. Uh, I say this not because I'm going to make money from the book, because I really genuinely care about the truth. I, I love Canada. I escaped from a, a bad place. I came to Canada. I want Canada to be a beautiful place for our children and our grandchildren, so great-grandchildren. So please and get engaged in the battle. Don't leave it for a few of us to fight the battle on behalf of you. Everybody has a voice. Get out there and fight for truth. And where, when, where can they find the book? Amazon? I... Of course, Amazon. You can get it all, you know, endless number of portals. Uh, you could follow me on Twitter at GadSad. I've got a YouTube channel and a podcast, The Sad Truth, S-A-A-D. So I'm not, I'm not hard to find. I'm everywhere. Yeah. So I want to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Saad. That was a great uh, pleasure for me to have this opportunity to be with you. And yes, you're right. Uh, I want our viewers and my viewers to be able to uh, buy your book and read it. Uh, that will give you uh, more uh, incentive to fight for what you believe. And that will give you the courage to fight for what you believe. And if you're doing that, like uh, Professor Saad, it will be great for our society. And uh, I want to be optimistic about our future, uh, but we need you to understand what's happening right now in our society. And reading uh, Dr. Sad books, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, a nice way to understand what's happening right now and the difficulty that uh, people may have to, to fight for what they believe, but that will give you the courage to do it. So Professor Saad, thank you very much for taking the time and I wish you big success. And I'm sure, you know, this book will be a bestseller in a couple of uh, weeks. Thank you so much. You're very kind. Great to be with you. Thank you. Have a nice day. Cheers.